0: Are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast. with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, uh, my guest today is Donnie Yance. I've had him back before for a very different purpose. Um, he's a master herbalist. Um, has an incredible amount of experience in helping people with cancer and various other ailments. Um, he has a foundation called the Mederi Foundation, M-E-D-E-R-I, foundation.org. But today, um, in conversation last time, Donnie mentioned that he was a Franciscan monk. Um, so that that caught my attention and I wanted to uh, ask him about that side of his life and, and his world. So Donnie, thanks for coming, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing great, thanks for having me again. Good to have you.
1: Yeah. When. Offline, I, I just said Benedictine monk and you said no Franciscan, but I, I don't have any clue about uh, what the different kinds of monks there are and what that means. Maybe, first of all, just a quick primer on uh, <laughs> what it means to be a monk in the Franciscan kind.
2: Yeah, and in actuality, I'll, I'll give a little differentiation on St. Francis and the the pursuit of a religious life that is maybe not completely monastic in and of itself, but first I'll start and say, know, there's many various religious orders uh, founded by various saints, St. Benedict obviously founded the Benedictine order. And most of them are spend, uh, they're they're more, they tend to be very recluse. And so they tend to, to live predominantly away from society in their monastery, thus the name Monk Monastery. St. Francis kind of deviated from that in that he wanted to live as Christ lived and pretty much roam the planet and not even be bound by a building. And so um, Franciscans were reclassified as friars and not monks. However, I lived in a Franciscan monastery because it was Eastern Rite. In other words, in the Christian church, there's the Western church and then there's the Eastern church. And even in the Catholic faith, there are over 20, there's 20 something different sects of the Catholic Church. And I was brought up Roman Catholic, which is what most people are familiar with. But I was professed as a Franciscan. So I'm, I remain as a Franc- in the Franciscan order as what's called a secular Franciscan. And I spent close to three years living in the Eastern Rite Franciscan Monastery. So even though St. Francis was predominantly a Western saint, if you really dive into his spirituality, it was very Eastern Christian, and that it was very centered in the Gospels. It was very centered around what's called the Trinity. The Trinity and the first, the church that uh, Francis started to quote-unquote rebuild was called the Church of San Damiano, which was ruined by the Crusades, and um, he literally started to rebuild it brick by brick. And that was a Byzantine church, and so. You know there is some link linkage between Francis and the east um but that the predominant difference is that Francis wasn't even bound by buildings even though eventually his followers did develop you know kind of monasteries Franciscans as the first order and the third order live amongst the people their primary role is service one of service and then the service and the prayer kind of share inequality where in monastic life prayer always is the predominant thing so even though monasteries would take care of people people would come to the monastery to be cared for and franciscanism the the, the followers go to the people so that's one of the the biggest uh differences okay
1: so you so what would be the day-to-day life of a uh, franciscan monk what would you do would you you know how how much do you? I mean, you're not evangelizing, but I guess you're trying to help actively. So, what does that look like?
2: Yeah. So, um, so the manath- in in a in a monastery, you're usually praying five together, together in prayer about five times throughout the day. So you have morning prayer, um, which is matins. You'll have what's called the daily liturgy, which some people call mass or the actual service where the Eucharist is is um, uh, given. And then you have the hours of the day, which are also times of prayer. So you're constantly going into the sanctuary to pray in a monastery. The Franciscans have um, a little less time in prayer. They, they tend not to do the hours, and so they'll do morning prayer, um, the uh, Matins, they'll do liturgy, and then they'll do the evening prayer, which is the best. And so, there's usually three times a day rather than five, in as praying in unity together as, as a group, as a whole. Because the Franciscans are, like I said, a little bit more actively involved in, in service, outward service, going out amongst the people and seeing how they can be <clears throat> um, providing. Uh, healing in all kinds of ways, you know, whether it be serving the poor, you know, a big part of St. Uh, uh, Franciscanism is service to the poor. Um, that was Francis, St. Francis was one of his early conversions was he was, he was very fearful of leopards. And so he really wouldn't go anywhere near leopards. And then one day he was on his horse, and he was traveling on the road, and he came across the leopard. And at that time, he saw God emanating, and no longer was this a leopard. He got off his horse, he hugged the person, he cle- he cleansed them, he gave them his clothes. And so that was uh, one of his moments, you know, his epiphany moments of his own internal conversion. Um, he, had, he had several of those that were, uh, that kind of transformed him into wanting to start, you know, his legacy of uh, really very simply living in accordance to the gospels. That's the big thing about Francis is really living very, very close to the, to the gospel life, which is one that is, is uh, kind of provided by the way Christ lived. And so he was trying to emanate that in everything he was and everything. And at the same time, he wasn't telling anybody else what to do. You know, he, he, he was very much about this is my path. You find your path. And so he it took him three times to get approval from the church because his early petition to start an order was refused um, to be admitted into the church because there wasn't enough rules and regulations. All it was was a bunch of quotations from the gospels. And then eventually, by the third time he rewrote it, it, it got approved. I think it was Pope Innocent that uh, approved it.
3: Mm. Interesting. And for
2: me, one of the big things about St. Francis. So when I when I really got influenced by him, I was at a crossroads of my life. Being brought up a Christian, a Catholic, and saying, you know, either you know either your faith makes all the sense in the world, and it should be a predominant uh, impact on how you live your life. It should take control of everything you do, or you should just forget about pretending. So I I, I got really confused whether, you know, whether what we believe is truthful, and if there's any truth in that, then why aren't our lives really different, and, or why are we pretending, you know, to do that? So, I studied, I, I studied all the religions of the world, I wanted to learn about Buddhism, about, about, I mean, you name it, and I, I was studying it, and it was kind of St. Francis that kind of, when I went back and learned, I said, you know, he didn't really have to, have to start a new church, And I said, you know, looking at how he lived his life, it was within the, the, the church, you know, the Catholic church itself. And I said, you know, I really don't have to change my personal faith. And then when I was introduced to Eastern Christianity, that made all the sense in the world to me because the East, just like in medicine, so there's a big parallel between theology and medicine. If you study medicine in the East and if you study theology in the East, they're very, um, comfortable with embracing mystery you know so but in the west we are the brain has to try to figure everything out and know everything and when we look at finding god you know we find god in nature we find god in in what i call relationships human to human love intimate love and then there's what i call the cosmic god which is the great unknown it's a mystery everything i believe in my faith can be you know not truthful, but you know, in a factual way, we don't really know, you know, at this point, but I believe what I believe in from faith and, uh, and it molds me and it, and, it, and it ultimately leads me to what I believe being a better and better human being. So no matter what, I embrace it for what it is, but that's the mystery, that's the mystery of faith. And the, and the same is true of medicine. You know, they, do, they can understand that herbs are very complex giving people multiple herbal formulas and seeing their health improve, you can't pinpoint it in this mechanistic way, like drugs basically mostly block something or against something, you know, you name a drug, it's a, you know, it's a a beta blocker, a, a HER2NU inhibitor, you know, an EGFR inhibitor, a VEGF inhibitor, you know, Everything is blocking something or inhibiting something. So they 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 bond kind of with that mechanistic mentality. But when it comes to natural medicine, there, there will be you know will be able to recognize some ways of explaining what's going on. But ultimately, it's so multifactorial, and there's so much happening that there is a little bit of mystery. And the unknown, when the unknown is part of something. The known struggles with that. One of the things about Madeiri medicine and the way I've set things up is like the known, what we know and what we don't know, in other words, you know, the unknown aspects of healing, they can, they can swim together. We don't have to have them be separate. We can do what we do in medicine that we understand and know. And we can complement that with all the aspects of medicine that we don't fully understand. And so that's one of the things that I promote. Look, it's a good way to look at it. Greg, do
3: you have a question? Yeah, I think for the benefit of some of our listeners who might not be familiar with this, I, I grew up Roman Catholic, so um, I think I have a, a pretty good understanding of this. But I, I'd like you to elaborate a little bit more about this difference between the Roman church, which was based in Rome, and then the Eastern church, which, if I remember correctly, was that based in Constantinople?
2: It was. Mm-hmm. But it, it, which, was, them, which was in yeah. Turkey? Yes, yes. So So the Eastern church... And that's where the Byzantine church was founded and that's the the monastery I lived in was a Byzantine so I lived predominantly with Eastern Europeans, Ukrainians and and a lot of the priests and brothers were from Hungary and that part of the world even though I'm predominantly Italian um that's where but, but I, that's what that's who I lived with so I lived with Slovak people uh, predominantly but if you go even east from there and some of the oldest churches like they're in the Middle East, you know, the Syrian churches and some of these churches that are being decimated, you know, these days um, in Africa, North Africa, and, and the Ethiopian church is part of the East. And they're very, very beautiful and beautiful music. And so some of the differences, um, first of all, in the East, the liturgy <clears throat> is entirely sung. You don't recite anything in the Eastern Church other than the homily by the priest. Otherwise, everything is musical. And there are, for the most part, aren't supposed to be instruments. It's supposed to be a cappella. So that's one thing. And then it's, it's a little bit much more traditional. And so the way the liturgy is set up in the East is almost identical to the way uh, the, the, the founder, John Christosom, and about 300 AD started the, you know, the, the church basically as we know it. And he, the way he formulated the, the liturgy is very close to the way it's done to today still. And so they're, li- they're, they're much more traditionalist when it comes to, you know, liturgical practice. Um, in the West, we've kind of changed, you know, we don't do Latin anymore. And, you know, John the 23rd kind of came in and did a lot of changing, some of many of which was good and some of which maybe wasn't so good. I think that, you know, the, the <clears throat> but anyway, the, the East is much more traditional and it's much more um, encompassing a mystery. A good example of that is you being Roman Catholic, you know, we we have a holiday or a feast day, I should say, not a holiday, a feast day, you know, called the Assumption of Mary, where you know we're taught in Catholic school that Mary's bodily it was bodily assumed into the heavens and there's no factual account of that in the in the West in the East it's called the Dormition of Mary and so that means the falling asleep of and we honor her for her uh, ability to be such a beautiful human being and be so uh, responsive to God's call in every way and we don't need to kind of create this superhuman mentality over her. And so the, the, the East is much more able to celebrate her humanness. In the West, they have the kind of, I almost want to say, make up a little story to add to, to her. And so um, that's a big difference in, in, in the church. And then part of the Eastern church is Orthodox. And so in around 1100, the church split in half. And then around 1600, a lot of the Eastern Church went back and made amends with the Roman Church, and they became one church again. But what we know is the Orthodox Church is still separate, but the tradition of the Orthodox Church and the tradition of the Eastern Church is one and the same. So um, it's a little confusing, but um, that's the best I can do to explain it.
3: No, that, I think that's helpful. And then again, I think there might be some people who are not maybe comfortable with the term liturgy. Um, I, the best way I would know how to describe that would be it's the the, the ceremony and the structure of the different services, like uh, the Mass, for example, in the Roman Rite, um, and then which the Eastern Rite does a, a Eastern Orthodox also has a Mass, but it's, there, you have you have two at least the one that I've attended, it has two celebrants rather than just one priest. Is, is, would that be fair to say?
2: Um, no, not necessarily. So whenever you use the term liturgy, it's always referred to the mass. It's not, other services would not be liturgy. Whenever the okay. Eucharist is concentrated, concentrated and given out, that is always considered liturgy. If that's not part of the service, it's not liturgy. And then they have, and sometimes it's called the divine liturgy, which is the Sunday liturgy. You know, it's the big one for the week. And then they have the pre-sanctified gift liturgy, which is the liturgy during the time of Lent. And so that's a little bit different um, because there's even somewhat of a fasting from the Eucharist then. And they only consecrate the Eucharist once a week rather than every day. And so... Um, when you, when you, so the, the, the term liturgy is another word for mass, basically, whenever you use the word mass, it means liturgy, and so um, I just think liturgy is, a, it's a more elegant word than, than mass, and so.
3: Sure, you know, I no, I, I appreciate and, that, and I think. Yeah, yeah. And,
2: and when you do your blessing, you know, when you bless yourself in the East, it's really interesting, you bless, you know, right shoulder to left shoulder first, and they're very into the the tr- the trilogy of God and being three persons in one God. So there's a lot of a lot of mystery around that that the Trinity. And so you do a lot of things three times. You recite things three times. There's a, a lot of repetition around three. And again, from a health perspective, when you start the liturgy in the East, the first 10, 15 minutes is is a you're reciting what's called the Lord have mercies. You're singing them over and over again in this rhythm. And what we've learned is that that rhythm sets the vagus nerve and it's really good for our physical health. And so when we enter into singing or chanting repetition prayer, you know, that kind of prayer is, um, is very, very helpful to our nervous system which ultimately feeds into and networks into all other aspects of health. Actually, this this, uh, Wednesday out here in Ashland, Oregon, and then three other talks, I'm giving a talk with a rabbi, Rabbi Joshua from Temple Emek Shalom on prayer. We're doing three uh, three talks together. I'm actually, as a Catholic, part of a a temple uh, as well, part of what's called the Musar movement in that temple which is, uh, <clears throat> I think, a very beautiful um, way to take faith and have it be lived out more in your life. And so, uh, the, in, in Judaism, it's based in the Kabbalah, but Musar was a, a way that the Kabbalah became lived out in people's lives. And it's, vir- it's, it's based on virtues, you know, in, the, in, in Judaism, they don't really have what's called virtues, so they call them the mudat and they've kind of adapted what we would as Catholics or Christians call the virtues. And so it's like, one might be looking at kindness. And so you'll spend a month, you know, understanding kindness and then, but you do it very personally. So it's, it's always meant to say how kind of a human being am I and how can I be more kind? And so you basically do a lot of self-examination. So it's, it's um, spirituality and psychology kind of, coming together in a way and so um, Rabbi Joshua and I are doing three talks on prayer and this week it's called, the title is called What is Prayer and Why Do We Pray the second talk we do is called Prayer as a Pilgrimage not as a journey, as a pilgrimage and the third talk we're giving is Prayer and Healing
3: Very interesting um, is, is that yeah, going to okay. be available online by any chance?
2: It will be, it will be podcast as well, yeah well, Cool, but don't I have ever... a very
1: basic question. Going back a little bit, how has traditionally and today, how does the Catholic or the Christian Church see monasteries and monks and things like that? Do they? Is it just a part of their apparatus, or do they see them as adversarial?
2: Um, you know, the Christian Church is a big is a big group of different churches, and so uh, you know, I, I again have been exposed to so much. In that, you know, I, I love. Um, learning from everybody and anyone. So I played, I'm a musician as well, I'm a jazz musician, but I played in a lot of um, Christian bands. And so, and I ran a soup kitchen as well with a lot of Christian churches and one temple. So I've been exposed to a a lot of diversity. And I would say, uh, of course, in the Catholic Church and the Eastern Church, they're revered. I mean, we see a very important part of monastic life, you know, and throughout the ages, you know, going back to Europe and for hundreds of years, people went to the monastery to get their, to get their healing. I mean, the the monks grew all the herbs, they made all the, you know, we have all these different elixirs and cordials coming out of monasteries and aperitifs. And so, you know, the, the, they were a very important part of society Um, And of course, the Franciscans are are a big part, you know, our Pope is a Francis, uh, he's not a Franciscan, he's actually, he's, he adopted the name Francis, you know, Pope Francis, because he loved Francis uh, so much, that was his favorite saint. But um, so I think that the understanding of religious life and the importance in the world, I think is, is revered for the most part. Um, but maybe in some of the what I call non-Catholic Kind of more fundamentalist uh, churches, they don't completely understand it. I mean, they don't understand different things. Like they 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 tend to criticize the Catholic Church for having you know what we call saints, but saints are not meant to replace an understanding of God. They're meant to give us examples that we can try to live up to. And so, when you learn about a saint, to me, it's it's really learning about a, another human being. That has done extraordinary things, almost divine things in their life, and that all well, they they weren't any different than I was to start off with. And so, how what makes one person even become a martyr? I'm always asking myself, you know, you know, or somebody like Mother Teresa, you know, what would make a nun living in a convent, living a holy life, decide on her way to her convent to start picking up children in the street and taking care of them? You know, what would what triggers the mind? to say I need to do more, even though it looks like she's a holy woman and doing everything, you know, that we've already admired her. So I'm always trying to understand what what happens in a person that does these really saintly things and ultimately becomes a saint. So for me personally, saints have been, you know, very important. And Mary, you know, again, is is considered the, the greatest example we have as as human beings, you know, again, to look up to. And, you know, she's very, very honored in both the, you know, in the Western church, she's called Mary in the Eastern church, she's called the Theotokos. And so the Theotokos means the one that brings God into the world, you know, as as this great teacher, this great example, and one that suffers and, you know, and dies for us. So, so Mary is um, very, very revered. And, and she's, um, she's a woman. So, so the most honored of all human beings, you know, in, christianity or in, in 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 catholicism and in the eastern church is is mary and in the the fundamentals church they uh, you know she's 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 not really mentioned a whole lot Greg, you want to go ahead
3: um well i i, I, I first of all i should probably correct um a, a misassumption here is i did grow up catholic and i am no longer a practicing catholic i i attend a um what would be considered a a reformed uh, Bible church now with my Mm -hmm. wife and have been involved in that, that tradition for a good many years. So I've kind of seen that from both ways. And I, and I would agree that Mary does not get the same kind of attention in -hmm. Protestant circles that she did um, when I was a Catholic. And probably as you, as you mentioned in the, the, the Roman uh, tradition, um, there might be maybe a little too much emphasis, almost a sort of mysticism around her that, that, kind of robs her of her humanity because she's Mm -hmm. obviously human. Um, And it sounds like the the Eastern tradition has maybe a a more balanced or possibly a more healthy view of Mary.
2: Yeah, I think so. You'll find that true across the board, at least for me, it it is, is like they, they are, they, yeah, I I would say that's, that's the truth. And, um, and also in the East, there's a big, big emphasis on the gospels on Um, understanding the teachings of Christ, big, big influence. And and on Easter Sunday, which is called Pascha, in the the East it's called Pascha, you, for a whole month, you basically, instead of greeting somebody, uh, hello, how are you, or anything like that, in the whole East, for a whole month after Easter Sunday, which is way more an important feast day than Christmas. Christmas is considered a low feast day in the East, and Easter trumps it by, you know, tenfold. I mean, if you, you know, and so, but in the West, we we see Christmas as the biggest holiday and Easter as the second. So that's another interesting difference. And then on Easter Sunday, the homily that every single priest recites, not just the gospel, the homily, was the same homily shared by John Christensen in like 330 ad because they, they found they believe that he gave such a beautiful homily they wanted to put it into the record books and just have it repeated so wow. that's that's an interesting thing and then you always greet everybody from easter day for an entire 30 days afterward. Christ, you say instead of saying hello he says christ is risen and then the person says back to you is truly risen so that's 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 how you say hello so whenever you, in the, whenever you see somebody in the streets it's just christ is risen yes he's truly risen so it's just uh that's how revere. and that's another good differentiation between the east and west the the Easter Christmas thing yeah
3: you know, I, if I might I, I'd like to elaborate on something here that you you brought up earlier we, We've talked a lot about living the gospel, but could you just run through um the the gospel? as as you would explain it to someone in 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 your the eastern tradition how would you how would you explain that to yeah, someone so it's the it's the
2: four books Matthew Mark Luke and John and it's basically the accounting of Jesus's life on earth and so it's that's that's what it is and so in there are some very i think wonderful guidelines for all human beings to live whether you're a christian or not so one of the ones that I, I always love. And I did a blog on it called the Beatitudes. So I always found that the Beatitudes were, uh, even Gandhi loved the Beatitudes. I mean, it was embraced by everyone. It was just a great guideline. It's, you know, how blessed, you know, how blessed are the poor in spirit, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. And so what's interesting about the Beatitudes, somewhat different like than commandments, commandments are do not or do, you know, do not, do not, do not. The Beatitudes leave it leave a lot up to you to try to interpret for yourself. So when it said when it says blessed are the peacemakers, you have to start asking, am I a peacemaker, and what constitutes a peacemaker, and what am I willing to do in you know to stand up for injustice. And so the Beatitudes are a big part. Um, And then the Our Father, the prayer, I would say, is the second big highlight. I mean, the Our Father prayer is also a beautiful prayer that anyone can say, whether they're Catholic, Christian, Jewish, or anything. It's just a beautiful, beautiful prayer. You know, and I always love the line, on earth as it is in heaven. So if you ever see the icon that I've developed for Madeira Medicine, um, very faintly, you'll see a halo above and a halo below representing earth and heaven. And just like in traditional Chinese medicine, the original traditional Chinese medicine was based in Taoism, there was always this concept between heaven and earth. And so we're always looking to say as we live our life is is a reflection of what we might think heaven's like, and then try to in our way manifest that on earth and so that that's what i would say all the parables are in the the gospels the various uh stories um and and so that's that's a a very you know that's a a very important part i think of all christian faith but i think even in the eastern east it's it's even more so and what's interesting being part for almost four years part of a temple i'm you know the temple studies the torah which is the old testament and I always used to, you know, resist a little bit of that study, you know, being Catholic. And now since, you know, I've been, you know, part of the temple, I'm all they do is study the Torah. They don't, you know, they don't have the New Testament. So I'm I'm actually gaining a lot more of an appreciation for, you know, a deeper interpretation of a lot of the stories in the Torah. I would agree. Yeah, Danny, what Danny,
1: what ahead, has Rich. it been like, for, you know, in the role of a monk? again, a lot of its service. How has that
2: uh, impacted your faith and changed it over time? Well, I'm still a Franciscan, so I, we I should say that in the Franciscan order, there's three there's three divisions. So the first order is that kind of monastic or the order of friars, and so all the priests and brothers and the sisters are all in the first order. Now the second order is called the Poor Clares, named after Saint Clare. So when when Clare was very moved by Francis's spirit. She wanted to join with him. And, and Francis says, um, well, a woman can't be roaming around the country with, with a group of men. So why don't you go in a monastery and you, you just pray for us in your monastery. And we'll all come and visit you and we'll write to each other. And that's kind of what happened. And so, so the poor Clares are a monastic order. So they are the Franciscan uh, monks, really, to tell you the truth, are the poor Clares. Um, And then the third order was when Francis was alive. A lot of people that have families and that were married said, we want to be part of you as well, but we can't leave our our families. And and so Francis developed a third order, which is a lay order, which is what I remain in. And so it's people that follow in the footprints of Francis's uh, particular emphasis, again, on Christ's life in the Gospels um but remain in the world and so that's i was professed as a as a third order franciscan before or it's also called a secular franciscan before right before i went into the monastery i was professed as that and so i actually could be buried in a franciscan habit you know the habit as well but um and, and then there's, there's difficulties with everything. You know, there's difficulties living, you know, in a, in a monastery with, with nothing but men, the same men every single day doing everything together. And, you know, that intimacy uh, that follows with that and being at, you know, not having as much contact. Certainly there's a vow of, uh, you know, there's all, there's all kinds of vows, you know, you cannot bear arms. And so even as a third order Franciscan, I took a vow that I can't bear arms, and so if I was ever called to service, for I would have to be put into a position that I wouldn't have to carry a gun, but I could do everything else. And so um, that that movie, uh, um, what was the Shawshank Redemption, or whatever Shawshank Ridge or uh, Hacksaw Ridge? If you if you ever saw that movie, that would that was that's a good example of what a Franciscan would have to be like. If uh, they were in service.
1: Okay, got it. So, Greg, do you have any questions at this point?
3: Um, yeah, it sounds like the uh, the 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 emphasis is really on living out the gospel and um, and serving others. So, can you just talk a little bit about what evangelism, evangelism looks like for for a third order uh, Franciscan, uh, a secular Franciscan?
2: Yeah, and so a good quote of St. Francis was was evangelize always, but use words if you have, only use words if you have to. So one part of Francis is that he believed that exemplifying your faith was much more uh, attractive than preaching your faith. And so um, when people are able to take notice of how you're living your life, and there's a certain amount of inner joy that comes with that, that then people will be moved by that and then comes the the next step, which is why my life is the way it is and I can tell you about it now. But there's not a big emphasis of going out and trying to convert people per se like you might think of. It's more going out and doing the work with the people and then having that work stand on its own to bring people to you. Okay. Okay. And I'm, I'm very familiar with a lot of the various, you know, kind of Bible-centered um, churches. I actually um, still play music at one. Um, I'm called in as a bass player occasionally as a at a big a big church, the gospel band that I played. And I played in two big gospel bands, recorded albums, was on television. I uh, actually have video of me from the uh, 1980s playing on a Christian uh, television show twice um, with a band called His Own. And then I was one in another one called First Love. And so I, I toured all over the East Coast, probably in every well-known big um, <clears throat> big Christian church at that time. In the 80s, That, that you know, there, was a big, it, there was a big movement at that time to the, those types of churches. But I always was comfortable in my faith and, and, again, tried to remain, you know, with France. You know, another big part of Franciscanism is, is humility, you know, so we, you know, we believe, you know, if, if you know, Christianity is, is almost a comical faith when you think about it. I mean, to be, you know, just think about how does it start off? Mary and Joseph are running around the town of Bethlehem. She's pregnant, nine months pregnant, and nobody will help her have a baby in the town. She has to go out to some cave. I mean, I mean, that, that doesn't make any sense to anyone. And so, but it's all a, an example of immense humility that you know, had to go in the cave there. And so there's constant emphasis on humility. Um, in in the first, you know, people say miracles. So What's the first miracle Jesus does? Is that, a, is that a wedding and they run out of wine and he changes water into wine? I mean, that's that's kind of comical in a way of all the things he could do. So so when you but you have to go deeper and deeper, and you have to apply what's called the hermeneutic lens. So hermeneutics is a, is an understanding, a theological understanding that. Whatever you read, you need to go deeper and deeper. And with hermeneutics comes a practice in all monastics, all monasteries, and, and all Franciscans' practice called Lectio Divino. And so Lectio Divino is when you read even scripture, you always read whatever passage you read, you read it three times. And each time there's a 10-minute contemplation or reflection and by the end of that contemplation and reading that same passage over and over and over again, you personalize it. You say, "What is God saying to me?" You know, in this—that's what it all comes down to. Because if you can't get still enough to hear what Pope Francis said was the, the whisper—you know, when you're completely still—then how are you going to know? You know, how are you going to be able to hear God? Because it's, it, it comes in that the quietness when you can quiet everything. And so that constant, so all monks go to bed at night, read practicing Lectio Divino. So that's the private prayer to read and read it three times. And then the hermeneutics is this layering and layering of understanding of things.
3: Mm. That's, that's actually rather interesting. There's kind of, a, and you may be aware of this already, um, there's sort of a trend um, and I don't know that you can really attach this to any particular denomination. As far as I know, it may even be popular amongst some Catholics um, for what's called discovery Bible studies, where a group of people get together, they read a passage and then rather than having a teacher, someone who's been trained in a seminary or something like that, um, there's a facilitator or a moderator who just says, okay, what does this passage tell us about God? What does it tell us about people? Are there examples to follow? Are there sins to avoid? And you just work your way through about six questions like this, and um, the group just contributes, and the Scriptures speak for themselves. And one of the rules is you're not allowed to go outside of that particular passage so that everybody starts on, a, on an even playing field. It doesn't matter whether you've been reading the Bible for decades or this is your first exposure to the Scriptures. Everybody is, is starting from the same point. And it, it, this sounds actually rather similar to this, this idea of Lectio Divina.
2: Mm-hmm, it does, yeah. It's very
3: That's useful, great. I mean, I find.
1: <laughs> well, Donnie, if I can take you in a, a different direction, but we were there before. So what, you know, all your work in understanding Eastern versus Western thinking, you know, in the church, um, how has that impact how you practice? You've been talking about this, but like very specifically, how has it changed how you, uh, you help people with the Madari Foundation?
2: Well, if I have a, a document for patients called um, Healing and Spirituality, and it, it's again non denominational and that everything is applicable to people with faith, different faiths, or with no faith, but it, it is centered in my beliefs. And so it's a way that I can translate what I believe in my core and have it be the most useful to as many people as possible. And so differentiating between what it means to be optimistic and what it means to be hopeful, you know, one is, you know, one is psychological and one is the- theological. So one, one goes beyond what actually happens in reality in the world. It's greater than that. We believe that things can happen that maybe heal a person, but don't ultimately cure them. And that, 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 you know helping people to see that, that 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 those two things can be parallel as well but they also can be different from each other and so that 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 would be one example um but there, there are many many different examples that i can give so the the way that i put madiri medicine together is an understanding of the life force as the predominant way of seeing human energy and within that life force you have a spiritual energy called the vital spirit, you have an endocrine or hormonal energy called the vital essence. And then you have an a cellular transfer energy, which is the vital force, or you know, in Chinese medicine called the chi, you know, that kind of thing. And so having people know that 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 the word health comes from the English root word how. How will be thy name, blessed, you know, just like in the like we use in the Our Father, um, the word how is the, the root word for health. It's also the root for word for holism. So to be healthy means to be whole. And it's also the root word for holy. So I'm always telling my patients that to be healthy means to be whole and also means to be holy. So those are a couple of examples on how it translates. And then I wanted to go back, Uh, I forgot to say one important distinction between Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity. That's very, very important too. If you know when the apostles came after Christ's life, the ones that went west to Rome were converting predominantly pagans that didn't like Jews. And so they, the, the Western Catholic Church is more of a, a, a deviation from Judy, Judaism. In the East, they were mostly Jews that they were saying, this is, the, this is our Messiah, you know, where everything you do. So it's more what I call um, existential Judaism than it is Christianity. Because one of, the, one of the things that Jesus said was, I did not come to abolish the rule, but to fulfill it. So in his own words, he says, I didn't tell you to make a new church. I said, I'm just the fulfillment of your church. And so when you, when you look at Eastern Christianity, there is a lot more ties to Judaism. And, and then if you look at the monastic life, all group prayer that that when i talked about the matins and vespers and the hours all group prayer is the psalms all you do is keep singing the psalms over and over and over again so that's uh those are two things that i forgot to share uh, a little bit earlier that i thought were
3: important
1: okay we have time for you know just maybe a couple more questions um so greg go ahead if you have another one and then maybe i'll have one more and that's it
3: okay um if you could, if someone is interested in, let's say, for example, they have no particular religious affiliation at all. They've been seeking and they're just interested in finding out more. What is it? What, what is a how does one become a Christian? A follower at least in the Eastern, right? How do, how does that happen?
2: Well, I think like anything else, it, it comes with an awareness around what that might mean. So you have to become aware what is it? What is that? What does that translate to, to a desire? And so if you desire and three, then I don't think the first step means anything more than it than than acknowledging that. And then from that point on, there are in, in the Eastern Church, you know, there's there's study you need to do and eventually, you know, make I think it takes up to a year to formally be be recognized and then be able to receive the what you know, the Eucharist, which, um, and so, and so there's formal study, and then you are asked, you know, in front of the, the church um, in a very formal way, and you, you recite your desire and your belief, and then you're accepted into the, the Eastern Church. And so um, a Roman Catholic can basically easily um, go back and forth between the, east and west you know liturgically speaking you can go to you know like if you went to a church on sunday in the byzantine rite, that would that would count just as well as it would in the roman and vice versa and i don't i don't really know the formality of what it what it means in the orthodox church i think there is some relationship where even that's permissible but you know it's getting a little technical and I think Pope you know one of the great things about Pope Francis is he's really trying to um, you know modernize the faith and and uh, kind of bring it to life again I mean, I'm a big big fan of of his and uh, I would highly recommend the movie that came out recently called two Popes excellent excellent movie I think it's not only a great movie yeah. to Have a little bit of an understanding of of the Catholic Church, but also Pope Francis and Pope Benedict, speaking of Benedict, and how people, Benedict was a harsh, kind of conservative, um, to the book kind of person, and a little bit cold and unapproachable, but a brilliant, considered a brilliant theologian. And then Francis is kind of the opposite, a very joyful, open person, wanting to be a reformer. And they and it, the whole movie is about their relationships so how two people with very different views but have again a love a love to uh to be christ-like and their being even to each other become the best of friends you know and uh, so i i the uh the acting is uh, superb the the uh the um, script is superb so it's uh, a movie that i highly recommend
3: I've heard about that movie before. It sounds like one that I definitely want to check out. Rich, how about you? What's your question?
1: Yeah, Donnie, if if you were able to talk to, you know, a whole bunch of medical practitioners and scientists and people that are, you know, the NIH, et cetera, they would listen. What would you tell them? How would you want them to change how medicine is done in the West?
2: Oh, well, a big part of the Madiri Foundation is to be on the forefront, on the vanguard of that change. And so what I've done, I've I've dedicated, you know, the last 20 years of my life to developing what I call as a unified system of medicine, which is how everything can be unified together to best serve people. So I've been writing the script for that, you know, for for that exact thing. And so uh, my hopes would be that I can, I mean, we're building a two-year academy or school um, to have people be masters of Madeira medicine, and it uh, will take two years. And then we've been attempting to do clinical research to validate that, but even the uh, pursuit with say Ohio State University in stage four breast cancer, we still have not gotten a trial off the ground even after eight years. So it's been, you know, it's been uh, difficult to make inroads into a system where clinical trials are set up to remove all variables and not at all conforming to herbal medicine because of the complexity that herbal medicine has and because of the great theoretical fear of herb drug interaction even in advanced setting in this case and even with even in patients that have failed a minimum of three lines of therapy the IRB the final IRB or the approval board of the institutions just resist you know they just resist us to be able to validate that this system that I've developed is far superior to what they have, but it includes their tools. I'm not getting rid of their tools, I'm just showing them how to utilize those tools in a unified way. So, um, that is my hope that I can have an opportunity to validate what I believe to be true, and that is that Madeira medicine is far superior in every way to any other system of medicine.
1: That's great. Well, Donnie, it's been. Uh, An eclectic call, but a really great one. I got a lot of insights. I I appreciate
2: you coming. Thank you. It was also wonderful for me. I don't get a a chance to talk about, you know, for me, a very intimate subject and uh, people always want to like chew my brain and kind of get all the scientific jargon out and but tend not to be as interested in this aspect of things. So I thank you very much for the opportunity as well.
3: Thank you. I think it's, it's, it's been interesting, too, to see how your theology integrates very closely with your practice um, in, in all aspects of life, not only in the medical part of it, but also elsewhere. And so I, I think there have been some really interesting insights that came out. So thank you very much. Thank you as well.